play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal, the show where celebrities share stories about the foods they love most, and we dig into the history, culture, and science of those meals with experts from around the world. Today on the program, Bear Grills. Bear is a survivalist and extreme adventurer. He's hosted many TV shows, including the incredibly popular Man vs. Wild, Born Survivor, and Running Wild with Bear Grills. On these programs, he gets up to shenanigans like eating a camel and then sleeping inside its carcass for warmth after removing the skin to use as a blanket. Once when he was in a Borneo jungle, he got bit by a snake. So he did what any of us would do. He promptly cut off its head, skinned it, and cooked it over a fire after tending to his wound with a wild yam plant. They always say snake tastes like chicken. Tell you what, it doesn't. And Bear often takes celebrities like President Obama and Julia Roberts along on his wild adventures. The new season of his National Geographic show, Running Wild with Bear Grylls, The Challenge, is out on July 9th. I was sent a screener of the show and almost had a panic attack watching him rappel down these craggy Scottish cliffs with actor Russell Brand, who, just like me, is deathly afraid of heights. Like I mentioned earlier, Bear eats and drinks some gnarly things. Yeah, I forgot about the urine. Yeah, I should have mentioned that as well. So today, we're going to talk about drinking pee-pee. There are folks in this world who do that by choice, even if they're not dehydrated and lost in a desert. And if you watch all the survivalist shows and dream of being dropped in the middle of nowhere with nothing but the clothes on your back, you can pay to have that experience. I chat with Kat Bigney, hunter-gatherer instructor and ancestral skills specialist. All of that coming up later in the show. But first, my conversation with Bear Grylls. Bear has been at this survivalist thing for a long time. He sharpened his skills during his three years in the British Special Forces, where he was a trooper, survival instructor, and patrol medic. And at 23 years old, he became one of the youngest people to summit Mount Everest. And now, on his TV shows, he eats a lot of gnarly stuff. Eating and staying hydrated is, of course, one of the biggest factors of surviving when you're out there in the wilderness. For folks who haven't seen any of your shows, can you give us a greatest hits of some of the wildest things that you have eaten and drank? Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, uh, um, first of all, I would preface all of this with, you know, I'm not eating a lot of this stuff normally. This is in the name of survival. And when your life is on the line, those who make it through are those who dig deep and do sometimes the unimaginable. So there have been some horrors over the years. But um, once you're out there for a while, you get hungry. <laughs> I don't know, probably a, a probably a mix of like rat brain, maybe, or frozen yak eyeballs, or camel intestinal fluids, raw snakes, tarantulas, scorpions, maggots. I mean, probably the worst was raw goat's testicles. That was bad. Skunk anus. I mean, amongst those have been a few good things. You know, I've learned that if you, if you, you know, skewer a scorpion over the fire for long enough, it's not going to taste so bad. I mean, occasionally, listen, I've been surviving on a desert island and caught lobster and it's been great. But those times are pretty few and far between. Most of the time it's a stinking jungle or a swamp. 
and it's raw, fast, on the go, chomp it down, keep moving. Yeah, I saw you getting to enjoy a cactus fruit and was very happy for you. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, literally, it's been a handful of those. That was good. I should have remembered it. And like, you know, some some bees, some honey. But uh, having said that, when I did try and get the honey, I also got nailed by um swarm of bees and my face blew up like a absolute balloon. That <sighs> my kids like that's their fun thing to Google when they need to pick me up. My face after <laughs> these bees. They tell me it's an improvement. Do you ever sneak any little tiny culinary comforts in your pockets? Like I'll steal little salt packets, you know, from In-N-Out Burger and I'll bring like a tiny hot sauce packet when I'm backpacking. Do you sneak any of those things? Or are you eating your your eyeballs and your testicles just totally plain and raw? No, I'm definitely always sneaking and, and more than just a packet of salt. I'm always sneaking some energy bars in there, you know, because you got to keep these the stars going as well. You know, they're rookies for this. Normally after about three or four hours, even the really fit ones, because there's so much adrenaline, of fear and anticipation, they're always exhausted. And I always throw a few bars in with the crew as well, you know, because I'm always just off camera saying to the guests, come on, just dr drink, drink this whole thing of water and, and rehydration salts, have this whole protein bar we're keeping going. And, and it's a key part of it. You got, you know, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's tough out there for them. And I, I'm always respectful of that. And I feel I'm not there to break them. I'm there to build them and give them an amazing experience for the wild. And it's tough enough as it is already. And um, I never apologize for throwing in a few protein bars. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I read some criticism that, you know, at one point you had stayed in a hotel and people found out and it's like, well, it's still a show for entertainment. Like you're not going to kill yourself or anybody else to make the show. That it, well, that's true. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. We're, we're take the safety super super seriously but at the same time it's always a small team i read those articles 10 years ago about hotels but we really are camping out and we really are in a cave where is the hotel how do you get used to that i mean do you get used to this i mean watching you eat these giant fish eyes and just they were so gunky and milky and i mean it was hard to watch do you get used to it or do you still have to really force yourself and cringe i think uh yeah those those bloody fish eyes are bad i mean i think you I think a little bit you get used to it. Uh, I think it's more about getting used to the state of mind, that adventure survival state of mind that says survival's going to hurt, it's going to stink, it's going to be hard, it's not going to be fun. But sometimes you've got to put your head down and just kind of keep going and do the difficult, you know, face those fears, whatever it is. And I think eating some bad stuff is always going to be part of that if you're going to escape from wherever you found yourself in a difficult situation desert jungle mountain you're going to need energy to get energy you're going to need food of some sort but it is interesting though that the priority really is always water you know you can last three weeks without food but only three days without water so you know really in a survival situation your priority is to get the fluids and actually if you're eating a lot of protein that's just going to use up a ton of fluids so uh, even though eating is a part of it it's lower down the list of priorities, really, which is you, you need water first. Which brought me to my next question about drinking urine. Uh, I understand you've done that even with some of your celebrity guests. Yeah, I forgot about the urine. Yeah, I should have mentioned that as well. I mean, <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, the, first of all, I'm definitely not one of those people who does that that at home. And uh, good I'm, to know. That, and there are some people like there are some people. I mean. The, as you know, they're wacky people all over the world, but there are some 
firm believers in regular urine drinking. I'm not one of them, but I do know that urine, if you're well hydrated in the wild, can help save your life. And if you're, you know, if you're short on on supplies and you're well hydrated, just to pee out super clear hydrated pee, you're going to be wasting a lot of that hydration. So really, you want to be collecting that and maybe mixing it with some of your some of your water and drinking it then spread up making it last longer i mean if you're peeing out stinking brown dehydrated pee that's pure waste product but uh hydrated pee can help you and there are many many stories in the wild of that saving people's lives and i've had to do it a whole bunch of times in the wild including also just times where you know sometimes i've been really dehydrated so i know that the pee is not going to help me but i can just soak my t-shirt in it and wrap that around my head and that's like going to be nature's air conditioning unit you know you've got the breeze <laughs> through the pee and it's going to be that's going to work so so yeah what was the one is that what you were asking yeah, <laughs> have I, could, drink yeah, it? Was... yeah I have drunk it <laughs> and it's yeah. not very fun salty and not very fun warm there is a reason we don't all drink our pee it is human waste so is it safe to drink it a Google search reveals all sorts of opinions, but the real medical websites like NYU School of Medicine don't recommend it. The outdoor gear company MSR, Mountain Safety Research, had their water research lab investigate, and they say drinking your own pee in a survival situation can do more harm than good. They write, not only will urine not rehydrate you, it will have the opposite effect and dehydrate you at a faster rate. Though mostly water, urine contains dissolved salts, minerals, and trace amounts of toxins from your liver. The more dehydrated you are, the higher the concentration of these pollutants are in your pee. If you're in a survivalist situation, you're likely extremely dehydrated and the concentrations are very high. Putting these pollutants back into your system can cause a buildup of toxic levels. MSR does say that it is possible to drink urine without getting sick. If you're healthy and fully hydrated and your pee is clear, you'll be fine. But that is not going to be the case in an emergency survival situation. Before talking to Bear, the only time I've ever heard of someone drinking their own pee was in a memoir called Yoga Bitch by Suzanne Morrison. I read this book about a decade ago, and that scene has lived rent-free in my brain ever since. When Suzanne was 25 years old and a little bit lost in her life, she started taking yoga classes at a Seattle studio, and she became enamored with her teacher, Indra. Indra was everything she wanted to be. So when Suzanne had an opportunity to attend a two-month yoga retreat in Bali with her teacher, she immediately signed up. For the first day of class, my yoga teacher was telling us about how we could get the Bali belly stuff in the water that's not going to agree with you. And she's like, it's it's like the deli belly or Montezuma's revenge. And you can get it just from like running your toothbrush under the tap or like being in the shower and you open your mouth a little bit and some water gets in there and then voila, you have the Bali belly. And she said, you know, the thing about the Bali belly that's really nasty compared to some of these other bugs you can get as a tourist is um, that after you've been sick for days and days and days, your tongue turns black. Like you start leaching toxins out of your tongue. And she was like, but I have never had this experience because I drink my pee. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I started looking around expecting other people to be like getting the church giggles like I'm getting because I'm like, this is really funny. I think she's actually serious about this, but this makes no sense. And I realized like half of them are nodding 
like they're all just like nodding along like yeah, oh. of course. like of course that's what you do you drink your pee and then you don't get the bolly belly yeah and that's when I was like okay I don't know where I am I don't know who I am anymore like what am I doing here but urine is also imbibed in other situations not just to heal an ailment some folks who follow Ayurvedic practices drink it as a preventative or spiritual health tonic sometimes every morning. There's everything from this idea that the uric acid in urine breaks down toxins in your body and can like promote well-being that way. And then there's a really esoteric uh, spiritual idea about drinking pee, which is that you could literally just take one drop of your own pee and put it in water. And it has enough uh, spiritual potency that it will heal you spiritually. But I, I learned a whole lot about the ideas that people have, like that it can solve everything from cancer to AIDS to baldness, like it can regrow hair. Apparently, this is this is what some people believe. Um, I don't, I don't <laughs> believe. <that. laughs> to be clear, <laughs> to be clear, <laughs> Suzanne went to Bali with a friend who went all in on this ritual. My friend Jessica, who I adore, she was my roommate there. She doesn't drink pee anymore. She would sit on the the patio in the sunshine and, you know, like with the sun on her face and like take a sip and she would drink out of this big Starbucks mug. Oh, so this wasn't like a private thing that she would just shoot first thing in the morning. She was like the best part of waking up is pee pee in your cup out on the porch. (laughs) That's exactly it. And, (laughs) you know, she was really doing it. She was doing like the full eight ounces. Like she had like the full Starbucks travel mug of pee every morning it was just like this really peaceful, quite lovely to look at ritual where she would just like sit in the sun and commune with herself in this way. So the big question is, did you drink your own <laughs> pee at this yoga retreat? I sure did. Only <laughs> once, one time. And it was because I had gotten the Bali belly and I was terrified of this black tongue. I'm incredibly terrified of illness. I always think I have cancer. I always think I have something, right? I was like, I cannot get this black tongue. I'm so freaked out. I was desperate and I was like, I will try it. And it took me hours. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And I finally did. And it was so, so <laughs> it's just the strangest. I mean, do you, how much, how much detail do you want, Rachel? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Just the, the flavor is really nutty. It's really, it's, oh. it was really strange and it kind of coats your mouth. Flavor was just like, unlike anything else I'd ever tasted in my life. And then, and then it was over and I had done it. Then I went to sleep because I think I was like, I cannot live with myself. I have to go turn myself off now that I've done this gross thing. Went to bed, slept for hours and hours and hours. And I woke up and uh, the Bali belly was gone. Like I was wow. fine. It's hard to know, but I mean, do you think that drinking the pee helped or do you think it had just run its course coincidentally? Or I'm very prone to suggestion, which I really truly am. Like I am like the perfect person for a snake oil salesman. I'm just very, very susceptible to the placebo effect, I think. So it could be that. It could be that it did a thing and worked. But I will say that it, the the sort of byproduct that was actually really amazing for me was that I felt like I'd conquered some huge fear. That part was actually really great where I was like, I just did something totally disgusting that I was really scared of doing, but I did it anyway. And I sort of felt like this high from it. Like I can do weird things. Like I can do crazy, like unusual, unconventional things and live to tell the tale. 
like I still wouldn't ever like eat a maggot if I could help it. But it was it was an interesting experiment in terms of like, can I do this thing that is totally gross and totally weird? But I have no idea if that's what cleared it up or not. But I but I sort of wanted to believe it. I wanted to believe that it had done that because, you know, you want something like that to be worth it. Like, yeah, then you hadn't done it in vain. Exactly. Yeah. I now feel suspicious of every single yoga teacher whose class I've taken just thinking about (laughs) people that are living amongst us waking up in the morning and just, you know, drinking a little bit of their pee. Like how many people in our city are doing this every morning? I would love to know a number. You know, when I was so I moved to New York after this time in Bali and I was working at um, a consulting firm as like an executive assistant. And I was doing my one woman show because this book was originally a one woman show called Yoga Bitch. And I was performing it in New York and I brazenly invited like the whole consulting firm to my show, which is hilarious now to think about because, you know, they're all fairly conservative and my show really isn't. Anyway, so this guy, I think he was a consultant, but he was also an opera singer he came to see the show. And then the next day he found me, you know, by the water cooler or whatever. And he was like, so, you know, it's funny. He's like, I drink my pee. And I was like, what? (gasps) I was like, are you, do you do yoga? What are you talking about? He's like, no. He's like, I'm an opera singer. And sometimes if I have a performance coming up and my throat, I feel like my throat's getting a little inflamed or scratchy. He said, I've just found that urine really helps. And he said he had a vocal coach who told him to do it once and he never looked back. He said, it really makes a difference. My mouth is hanging open. That was a twist. It was such a surprise. (laughs) Tomorrow morning when you're out and about on your way to work, be suspicious of every single person you see sipping from a Starbucks mug. It may not be coffee in there. Did you guys make it? Did you make it through the PP segment? It's over now. We can move on. We're going to take a break. But when we come back, Bear tells me why he stopped eating vegetables. And of course, he shares his last meal. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Palsbo, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest, and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P, or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. You were vegan for many years and you have drastically changed your diet since. Um, What are you eating these days when you're not in the wilderness, when you're at home? Well, I was always a meat eater growing up and then kind of probably about 10 years ago, I felt I'm going to try veganism. And I thought at the time that might be healthy and I thought at the time that might be good for the environment. 
time and education and experiences told me that it's not you know and actually your health tanks often for me it certainly did for many of my friends who have had similar experiences and then I thought hold on I'm just going to look at nature more what does nature do what have we evolved in terms of evolution over hundreds of thousands of years to thrive how is our health evolutionarily designed to thrive and the answer is on red meat look at the indigenous people around the world you know they they fight dream laugh joke talk all day about the liver <laughs> you know of of the animals they're hunting as prized as the best bit of it you know they they know the power of of red meat and blood and 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 milk and honey and fruit to sustain them and really help them to thrive and to be there then well protected from uv and the sun and all of these things that have a knock-on effect to our health and you know sometimes they'll eat a few roots and a few leaves but really for them it's survival food in terms of food that really is going to help them thrive and be healthy so i kind of just copied that and actually it's been eye-opening my health has really i've just felt stronger better more alert and so yeah i'm i'm pretty strict with it i try and just every day meat a little bit of liver lots of fruit i don't have veggies really i kind of think they're full of defense chemicals designed to not encourage you to eat it i don't have the wheat and all the sort of processed food and the gluten stuff that i think just messes with people's guts so much have quite a lot of honey love that and i'm feeling good and feeling strong so that's been that's been my journey and uh yeah as as churchill said to improve is to change <laughs> so i have changed but hopefully improved uh quoting churchill i've found a true englishman <laughs> <laughs> yeah no, there's always something there's you could pull a churchill one out for anything I mean, get me onto any topic. I'll give you, we'll give you one of those. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so let's talk Thank about you. <laughs> I know it's either, that or, or, it's either that or Paul McCartney just waiting to see what's next. There you let's, go. let's talk about your last meal. What would you choose to eat for your last meal? Well, last meal, that's interesting. Because again, I think beforehand when I was, had a much more what I thought was healthy diet, having salads and everything. I was always craving like a cheat meal, you know, which would just be kind of anything that I thought was delicious. And nowadays, because I'm eating all the delicious stuff, <laughs> I actually don't really crave it. I'd probably for my last meal have all the stuff I really love. You know, I eat a ton of butter. I love butter. I just don't really like the bread. I realize the bread is a cardboard. I love a really great burger, but I just don't really have the bun and the lettuce, you know, but I love Great, good quality grass-fed burgers covered in great cheese, avocado. I'd probably have that. You know, I'd uh, probably maybe have a really like apple crumbles, fruit crumbles. They're probably not so healthy because they got the wheat in them. I'd probably have one of those. It was my last one. Chocolate. I eat a lot of chocolate. I'd try not to have too much of it. If for my last meal, I'd probably really go for it on the chocolate. I probably wouldn't worry about the hangover. I'd probably have a few cocktails. In fact, it would probably help. Probably double the number of cocktails. But above all, my family, great friends, you know, life and great food is all about those moments shared together, aren't they? And the preparation and then not feeling sick afterwards, which is what I'd always feel when I'd, if I'd have a cheat meal and it was all terrible processed stuff, I'd feel terrible. Now this way, I, I, have, I have my last meal every day, <laughs> really. That would probably be it. So a cheeseburger with a stick of butter on the side. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be a few cheeseburgers and a few sticks of butter, some great okay. cheese, avocado, homemade mayonnaise. Awesome. Mm. Um, maybe it's really good sushi and ceviche. I love that. And then we'd hit hit into the the cr- the crumble, the apple cobbler. I think you call it in America, fruit cobbler. So- Is that what you call it? Well, they're di- I actually yeah. have done a, a lot of research on this. Well, that's an exaggeration, but there's crumbles, there's crisps, there's buckles, there's all these different names, and they're all slightly different. Are you talking about the one that has kind of like an oatmeal, brown sugar, butter topping? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's the cobbler in America. A cobbler it? for us has more of a biscuit topping, and for us, biscuit meaning like a you know, bread, not a cookie. Oh my God. Oh, Apparently yeah. we speak such different English. We can't talk about dessert. Well, two nations divided by a common language. We, <laughs> yes. uh, and I spent a lot of time in the States and I've got the cobbler wrong then. So yeah, crumble, crumble is the kind of oatmeal with um, honey and butter and all of that as a topping. Awesome. Awesome. So Maybe you- custard, custard as well. I love custard. Do you get, do you have custard? In America? Yeah, you custard. Like a ice cream, a cream or a pudding. Again, the dessert is really tearing these two nations apart. I know. When a custard is the hot yellow creamy sauce that you put on top of the crumble. Whipped cream? I'd probably go a clotted cream as well. Do you do okay. clotted cream? <laughs> no. <laughs> oh, wow. You guys are missing a clotted cream is cream that is so thick you could like almost, you know, throw it around. It's, um, yeah, it's amazing. You never had scones and jam and clotted cream i think i had it once when i had high tea in victoria or like visiting england yes yes with the tiny sandwiches really with the thick. crust cut off yeah yeah let's see you see um yeah awesome clotted cream i'd have a ton of clotted cream thing is i eat so much of this stuff anyway and i always used to think oh it's going to be so bad for your heart and bad for your thing i got like i had my blood done the other day i have zero inflammation which was Way better than it was before. And the irony is I have so much saturated fat. And it's like, hold on, all this stuff I was told beforehand, I'm not sure I trust a lot of that government advice any longer. <laughs> so you can only go by your own experience, can't you? But um, I, what I do know is that you'll have a lot of listeners who will be going, I get it. I get it. You'll probably have an awful lot who will be going, you're crazy, you're going to die. But um, there is a lot of people that are kind of getting into this ancestral way of living a natural way and thriving and doing well off it so we'll see for his last meal bear grills wants a few grass-fed burgers with good cheese avocado and homemade mayonnaise he wants an apple crumble some chocolate and a few cocktails enjoyed with his friends and family it is so funny trying to talk about desserts with a brit As anyone who watches The Great British Bake Off knows, we speak two different Englishes when it comes to sweets. And for me, the most confusing one that I actually had to look up to tell you this information for this episode is the word pudding. So of course in America, pudding to us is a creamy custard, usually chocolate, vanilla, or butterscotch. But in England, pudding is just a generic term for dessert. Let's have a pudding after dinner. I'm so sorry to everybody who is British. I will never do that again. So number one, a pudding can be a generic term for dessert, uh, but a pudding is also specifically a steamed or boiled dessert like Spotted Dick, which is a steamed cake with a funny name that Heinz sells in a can. 
I know this because a listener sent me a can of Spotted Dick many years ago, and I kept it on my desk for a decade. A pudding can also be a blood sausage, and a pudding can be a dessert that used to be steamed or boiled, but is now baked, like sticky toffee pudding. You guys got that? Not confusing at all. I'm hoping we'll have the chance to do an entire episode on British desserts in the future. Right now on TV, there are a lot of popular reality shows where people get dropped into the wild alone and are challenged to simply survive. If this intrigues you, but you are way more of a car camper who survives on s'mores and chips and sleeps on an air mattress when you're out in the woods, there are courses around the nation that can teach you how to adventure a little bit more like Bear. My name is Kat Bigney, and I am an ancestral skills specialist. I specialize in cognitive archaeology, recreation of primitive tools, and ancient tattoo techniques. Kat has been an instructor at Utah's Boulder Outdoor Survival School for 23 years. She's done a ton of survivalist consulting for various film and TV projects, including The Island with Bear Grylls which was a total coincidence. I had no idea that she had worked with Bear when I reached out. Yeah, I worked with him close to 10 years ago. He's phenomenal. Um, he's such an incredibly like gracious, kind, supportive person. And when I was working for him, I think he was filming maybe four other projects or five projects. So the man was like literally exhausted and he yeah. still he made time for everybody. It's really exhausting stuff. In fact, the first time I met Bear, this is funny, um, but the first time I met Bear, I was a little confused because I was like, okay, we're like friends. He's really nice, but is he winking at me? And then I realized he was just so tired because he'd just flown in from another project that he needed to sleep. And I think he was just having like a little like twitch that he needed to go to bed. A little lazy eye moment. (laughs) Kat grew up in a remote region of the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. Yeah, I mean, I had a very atypical upbringing. So a lot of the things that are considered to be survival skills were part of my daily chores, the things like hunting and making a daily fire to stay warm or just like, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to have to like process half of a deer, like at any given point in time growing up. I mean, I cooked often on a wood cook stove. If I ever was not in this home, my sister and I had a teepee that we would just stay in and it was just part of our life. And we didn't attend public school until like much later, I think in life, like I have a college degree, but I didn't go to public school. My formative years were spent, like my education was spent like in the mountains hunting. Things haven't changed that much. Kat is currently living in a teepee on land that belongs to the Boulder Outdoor Survival School, which is also known as BOSS. BOSS has a hunter-gatherer course where folks spend four days studying and making Stone Age tools, and then they go out into Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument for nine days with a group and a guide but no food or modern equipment. Kat teaches Boss's primitive living intensive course, which is similar. Essentially, we are taking groups of people, teaching them everything that they would need to know in terms of skill and then creation of fabrication of, let's say, like tanning a sheep hide, fashioning pottery, weaving a basket, and just essentially creating a tool set that is quote unquote primitive and going out into an environment in the context of like the ancestral Pueblo, and that's what this landscape is, and then living off the land. So we have this really romantic idea that like, you know enough, you can walk out in nature and just survive. But that's not actually true. For example, right now in Southern Utah, we've had a really wet year. So there's so much life. There's so much abundance. So there's so many things that we'll be able to harvest that we can harvest. And the animal life, the population is booming. For this year, anyway, there's a lot of food. But that isn't always the case. Like we just got out of a 10-year drought. 
And that was very often the case in this region. And so people developed strategies to grow corn here because we will supplement sometimes with like dried corn or things that would have been appropriate um, in years when maybe we don't have a big acorn harvest. How long do you take people out for and what do you bring out? Like, I mean, are you doing anything like sleeping bags? We head out on the expedition phase of this primitive intensive and kind of hike to a primitive village. That's our hub. I allow whatever people have prepared plus the clothing on their back. So no sleeping bags, um, no knives, no lighters, no flashlights. Typically people have a canteen made out of a gourd or a horn or, you know, a piece of pottery. Everyone's made a piece of pottery to cook in, a fire set, um, a collection of stone tools, an animal hide to use as a blanket. And let's see, usually a pitch stick that's glue to do repairs, sinew, animal tendon to use for repairs, maybe a fishing net, basically whatever we've had time to create in the week prior. And how do they carry all that out there? That's a great question. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So typically I'll teach my clients how to make a pack using their animal hide. Either they can use a piece of their clothing as straps or we'll have like a woven strap that they'll teach them how to weave or braid to carry it. And then we'll take off. Yeah. So give an example from in this region, let's say like it's this year, a year of bounty. What kind of things might you come back with on a really good day? Acorns, maybe a marmot, tons of fish. We could also hunt rabbit. Um, the cottontails are really great. It's it's a little bit like it's difficult because they carry diseases when it's warmer. Definitely could come back with berries, acorns, and Kenyan pine nuts, which are amazing because it's a source of fat that is not animal derived and super rare. Those are some of the food staples. Also, like Indian rice grass is a grain that was a staple food for the indigenous people a long time ago, and it's really nutritious and delicious. A lot of green edibles, tubers. And it's amazing. I've traveled around the world and there's nothing to replace local indigenous knowledge. Like the people who were living in this area that we considered what we call the Anasazi or ancestral Pueblo, and they were smart and they had resources. And even though it seems like a barren desert, if you think about like all of the tools they had, stones to grind their grains with, tools to make hunting tools with, they had the ability to reroute water. They had corn that they learned to cultivate. But it's pretty incredible how like need drives innovation and resourcefulness. And I, one thing that I love about the hunter gather and the primitive living intensive, we get to see the things that people come up with using primitive gear and primitive technologies to solve problems, especially in food acquisition. I'm curious what kind of people come out and do this course. Cause I'm thinking of it in terms of if it was a movie and I can imagine some, you know, super rich CEO of a company who likes to push <laughs> himself to extremes <laughs> who goes on these trips. Like everybody. Sometimes it's people that have experience in like primitive skills and survival that want to deepen their knowledge. And other times I've literally had clients that have never camped a day in their life. That's crazy. They're like, no, we don't want to go to a national park first. We're just going to go straight into acorns. But I love that because there's so much openness. They don't have preconceived notions about how it's done. They tend to experiment more. I think it's fun. Do you notice in the time when you're out with people that the longer they're gone from technology and comforts that their intuition does start to kick in more and more? One million percent. This summer, I'm leading a 28 day field course for Boulder Outdoor Survival School. And I love that length of time. It's really hard to commit to. But even in 14 days, I find that people start to change. Their awareness changes. They start to like sense humidity changes in the air. Their whole sense is involved. You don't have to tell them to become more in tune with the land, but things start to open up. They start to connect. They start to understand water like an animal would. Like Bear, Kat has eaten all kinds of funky wild things on her expeditions. 
just because something's edible doesn't mean it's good. This is a horrible story, but I'll just be honest and tell you. I was on a TV project in Panama and <laughs> and I was working with one of those producers and they said, well, do you eat insects? And I was like, well, I've had a couple ants like here and there. I've tried them, but I don't really eat insects. He's like, well, would you? And I said, well, uh, sure, why not? And so I saw these giant cockroaches and I was like, well, he's like, what about one of those? And he was like, it was great for TV. And I was like, all right, well, I'll try it. But I know that they carry parasites. So let me just cook it first. The camera's on and I'm talking about how like insects could save the world. And that if we started consuming insects, how great they would be for us. And that like, they're so prolific. And so I gave this amazing spiel about how great insects could be. And I took this like two inch cockroach and put it in my mouth. And the second my teeth hit it, I knew I was in trouble. And like the whole thing just exploded in my mouth. <laughs> I tasted this amazing, like horrible exoskeleton insect, very specific protein taste. And I immediately started to throw up. <laughs> and mind you, this is on camera after giving this spiel about how great in eating insects <laughs> would be. So I've worked in other TV projects and it's part of my like agreement that I won't do it because I know I'll throw up. I know it's a horrible story. Oh, no, I love this story. I thought you were just going to say that you like made a face or something, not that you just started no. immediately throwing up. Oh, my God. So, you gave them better TV than they thought that they were getting so much better. Great. And so there's so many times like that where I'm just like, I'd rather fast. And which is interesting is because our bodies actually are built to fast. So like our bodies will click over to something called glyconeogenesis. And it was where we essentially are self-cannibalized. So there are times when I'm out and I'm like, you know, this isn't ideal to eat. There's not much food here. It's really like a bad situation, but hopefully in a couple of days, there's something more ideal. So that even though like I've been doing this my entire life and I have a great knowledge for it, that doesn't mean that like I don't go days fasting. Like there are times when you just can't find food, times when you just can't find water. And when you do, you come up with ways to store it, to preserve it and to eat what you can. So when you're finding yourself fasting for multiple days, cause you can't find anything, is this something that might happen when you're out with a group or because you have these clients, do you always make sure that they can eat? Is this something when you're on like a personal expedition? Oh no, I I'm really honest with people. Like they may go without food. Survival courses that I run are engineered anyway. So like I'm aware of where we're going and what resources are there. So at some point I kind of build in safety nets. Like I may know a great fishing hole where there's good opportunity, but maybe we'll fail. Maybe there's a great place. I think we can spear some marmot, but maybe it just won't work. And so that's always like a risk. I've found that when people are hungry, they're resourceful. I think the first few days are typically a pretty, pretty light in food, but as we're getting sort of established as a community, we end up eating so much by the end processed acorns. Like it's not always food that you love. Like I think processed acorns are kind of bland. I wish, you know, there was wild garlic growing in my region, but you know, they're edible. And so it's food. And like, I think my standards for like delicious food sort of goes down the longer I'm out. <laughs> Have you had to drink your own pee when you're out and you can't find water? Oh God, no, I don't drink urine and I don't think it's smart. I think it's so gimmicky. If you, by the time you're dehydrated enough to drink your pee, your pee is toxic. What is a food that you crave the most after you come back from, let's say like a 28 day expedition? Mm, this is so horrible, <laughs> but typically some kind of like fizzy cold soda, like something that's like super refreshing like a Sprite or something, or I'd even drink a Diet Coke, anything, like anything that's like bubbly and cold. If Fred Flintstone likes fruity pebbles and gummy vitamins, Kat definitely has permission to enjoy a Sprite after 28 days of eating acorns and squirrel in the desert. 
Time for a quick break, but when we return, Bear and I talk about his butt cheeks. I mean, why not? We've already talked about pee and eating eyeballs and cockroach regurgitation, but I promise you, promise you, promise you that this story is not gross. We'll be right back. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at cascadepbs.org or find a link in the show notes. Can you very quickly tell me the story of how you proposed to your wife and specifically where you had the ring stored? Well, this this is an example of misinformation. <laughs> okay, but, but I did propose. We did. I was skinny dipping in the sea, and uh, but it was a spontaneous proposal. I didn't have a ring. I think I don't know how this story came about. I think a journalist said, "Where did you keep the ring?" And I jokingly went, "What do you mean? Of course, in the butt cheeks." But no, I didn't have a ring, and I didn't keep it in the butt cheeks. So, um, but we did get engaged skinny dipping together in the sea, and um. It was unprepared, no ring. We had to then go and find a ring. And then the adventure began. (laughs) I'm so glad I'll be able to tell the world the truth about where the ring was not. (laughs) There you go. There you go. I'd be grateful. (laughs) You recently offered uh, the president of the Ukraine a little bit of chocolate when you were having an interview together. What happened when you offered him that chocolate? Well, it's funny because it wasn't like I was taking him into the wild where the wild sort of you know, he's a great leveler. And, you know, this was different. We were in a war zone in a city, high tension all the time. And I thought, maybe I'll just take a chocolate bar and we'll just sit and eat chocolate for a bit because that's always leveler. So I did that. But his security was suddenly a bit nervous of like, hold on, am I trying to poison the president? (laughs) So I had to go, no, I'm not. There's nothing bad in this chocolate. This is good. So I ate some chocolate first and it was all great. It was all fun. We laughed. He was, you know, it was an amazing privilege to do and and get to hear his story and his journey and his life and and how he's coping and his family and it was a privilege to be able to go there and shine a light on some of this stuff and that was bear grill's last meal the new season of running wild with bear grills the challenge is out july 9th on national geographic bradley cooper was amazing i got to Adventure with him in Wyoming in wintertime was a hard one. Benedict Cumberbatch in, in Scotland, a really incredible journey with him, ended up on a nuclear submarine at the end. Russell Brand, a hilarious episode, one of the favourite ones I've ever done, just in terms of laughing a lot. <laughs> uh, Rita Ora in the desert was amazing in Nevada. Really proud of how they did. They dug deep. They face a whole ton of fears. That light in their eye and that pride at the end of it is something you can't buy. Thanks to Suzanne Morrison, author of Yoga Bitch. Have you ever used a neti pot? I haven't, but I know what they are. 
So that was another thing that they did with pee. You know, so it goes up one nostril and out the other, and it just like cleans everything out. Yeah, it's going through your sinuses. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, but then it gets to your brain. Yeah, you don't want pee in your brain. I'll pee in my brain. Yeah. All of this just provokes so many childhood insults, like pee oh brain. And- <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Kat Bigney, head survival instructor at Boulder Outdoor Survival School. You can find a link to their courses in the show notes. I just realized two of our three guests have animal names. Thanks, Cat and Bear. Thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It is a free way to support the show that really does make a difference. You can follow along on Instagram. I'm Hello Rachel Bell, B-E-L-L-E. And find a link in the show notes to subscribe to my free Substack newsletter. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Hi, Bear. Nice where are you? Oh, oh nice are to you hear there? you. You all right? <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. It's a whole new me. A whole new you. But you're still drinking pee, so you're the same as ever. As, as my friend said yesterday when I told her I was going to be talking to you about this, she was like, a moment on the lips, a lifetime on the podcast. <laughs> oh, my God. Game. <laughs> yeah, we just have to get that to rhyme and then we can copyright and trademark it. <laughs> Sorry to be so disgusting, but like, I was like, that's the grossest thing I can imagine is to throw up your own pee. So aren't you glad you had me on for this? <laughs> well, you know, I have editing power. So I'm going to, I'm like listening, going, what do I keep? It is a food podcast, but I do think it's interesting. I'm not sure what I'm going to keep. <laughs> boop, 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 boop,